0: Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from the Weekly Standard, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, Adam White, our insider DC attorney par excellence. Adam, thanks for joining us.
1: Uh, Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. You've
0: got a big piece upcoming uh, uh, regarding Antonin Scalia moving forward in the Supreme Court. that will be at theweeklystandard.com this weekend. And we want to get a little teaser from you, if we can, and also check in with you on where we are when it comes to uh, filling or not filling uh, uh, Justice Scalia's seat.
1: Well, thanks, Michael. You're right. I'm working on a piece this week, uh, looking back at Justice uh, Scalia's legacy. Obviously, it's it's impossible to to really summarize and, and do justice to uh, the legacy of, of Scalia, who, who served the court for three decades, and will go down in history as one of the truly great justices. But I'm trying to to offer uh, readers a window into some of the things that made him particularly great in his time and in the time to come. Uh, Earlier this week, I had a post on the website um, on, on where things stand as a constitutional matter in the Senate with respect to an upcoming nomination by the president, a post that actually happened to be uh, based in research I did uh, as a law student and newly minted lawyer uh, in an article written in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy on the Senate's constitutional power and discretion to simply uh, not deal with or not vote on or not hear a president's uh, judicial nomination.
0: Well, you heard the president say this week that the uh, Senate has a constitutional duty, that they can't reread the Constitution in order to say that it's not their duty to uh, replace uh, Antonin Scalia while the president's still in office. Isn't isn't that what the Constitution requires?
1: Well, that's certainly what President Obama said. And in fact, that's what President George W. Bush said when Senate Democrats were uh, uh, blocking and slow walking his judicial nominations in the first part of his own administration. The fact is the Constitution does not, on its face, actually require the Senate to act on a judicial nomination. Uh, The the provision in Article 2 is pretty straightforward. The President shall nominate, and with the Senate's advice and consent shall appoint judges. But there's nothing in there that says the Senate shall Uh, hear a nomination uh, or that it shall vote up or down on a nomination. Ultimately, that discretion lies with the Senate to uh, organize its own proceedings how it sees fit and to move or not move forward as it sees fit.
0: So we've heard a lot of back and uh, forthing as uh, uh, Charles Schumer learned this week, nothing stings as much as being quoted accurately. And so his, uh, you know, his, uh, the video of him saying "We, we won't fill a seat in the last 18 months of Bush, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got that down that this is a pure political fight. But are there some appointments in the past or some some conflicts of appointments in the past that you would point to that would be instructional to help us understand, you know, how this has worked and what our standards should be when it comes to leaving the seat vacant for six months, a year, et cetera.
1: Sure. Let me just say at the outset, with respect to Senator Schumer, you know, it's it's been said that that uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. Well, if that's the case, then uh, Senator Schumer's been an extremely virtuous uh, person at times, because this is the, <laughs> this is the height of of hypocrisy on his part. The line that he and, and Senator Warren and others have been peddling this week is that Senator Cruz and others ignore the fact that a president's – term in office is actually three years not four well for years when senator schumer was opposing and 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 blocking judicial nominations from the bush administration uh schumer wouldn't concede that the president's president bush's term was any years at all and so it's remarkable to hear him now well remarkable but unsurprising i suppose to, to to hear him say this now um uh sorry go ahead
0: Well, no, I was going to say that uh, looking in the past, I mean, like I know that uh, we've had presidents who've submitted nine justices in a row and could not get them confirmed that this is there's nothing new. If I understand correctly, and you're the attorney and you've written the scholarly work, nothing new about having protracted fights over filling Supreme Court seats.
1: Yeah, that's right. Now, first off, there's only been, I think, about 100. And I remember the number exactly. It was in my blog post, about 160 Supreme Court nominations in the history of the country. 36 of those failed to get confirmation, and of those 36 that were never confirmed, 25 never even got an up or down vote. So it's hardly unprecedented for the Senate to block a a nomination without an actual up or down vote, whether it's the president withdrawing his nomination or the nominee himself or herself withdrawing. The fact is that the process need not end with an up or down vote. Sometimes it hasn't. And we've seen we've seen examples in the past. And the example that a lot of folks uh, in the Republican Party uh, in the Senate right now are talking about is 1968, when President Johnson attempted in an election year to replace the outgoing Chief Justice Earl Warren with Justice, then sitting Justice Abe Fortas. They wanted to elevate him to the chief spot. The fact is the Senate at the time simply did not move forward on that. Um, and ultimately, uh, Warren Warren had to Warren had to uh excuse me Warren had to hold on for a little bit longer and his nominee or his successor was nominated and appointed by President Nixon. More recently Democrats point to the example of Justice Anthony Kennedy being appointed in election year 1988. The fact is though, Kennedy's appointment process began in 1987 and it began only after the the Senate Democrats uh succeeded in their uh, their sort of seminal uh, opposition to the Bork nomination. And after the Bork nomination failed, then uh, President Reagan uh, briefly nominated Judge, Judge uh, Douglas Ginsburg to take that spot on the Supreme Court, and that fell through. It was only after all of that that the Senate finally arrived upon was largely the, cons- the president finally arrived upon what was essentially the consensus nominee of Justice Anthony Kennedy. And that is the one that Democrats finally affirmed much later in the process in 1988.
0: One of the arguments I'm hearing, Adam, is that if Antonin Scalia were here today, he would be telling Cruz and Rubio and McConnell, hey, follow Constitution and precedent and give the president the nominee that he wants. Is that an accurate description of Anton Scalia's view, do you think? And how does it fit in with his broader, you know, kind of uh, legal philosophy?
1: Well, I don't doubt that suddenly Democrats will start to invoke Justice Scalia as one of their heroes. That always seems to happen as soon as a prominent conservative is no longer a, uh, a threat on the political or legal scene. But the fact is, and this is the point that I'm going to get to in my piece this week, is that Justice, Justice Scalia, he respected both the rule of law and the Constitutional's uh, original uh, understanding, its original understood meaning. He respected that, and he also respected politics. And his basic point was that the rule of law is significant, but in order for it to keep its legitimacy, it has to be kept within its own proper legitimate limits in order to leave room for the real work of government, which under the uh, the umbrella of the rule of law is day-to-day politics. I mean, I, I, I would hesitate before putting any words in Justice Scalia's mouth. He's already left us with plenty of opinions. Uh, we know what he said. But I think Justice Scalia, I, I, I would say I think Justice Scalia, uh, the fact that he respected the political process so much, uh, I do think he'd be perfectly happy to uh, sit back and watch a political fight over uh, whether to whether to fill his seat this year or next and a, a political fight over the merits of the next nominee.
0: And, you know, so fascinating, that belief in democracy that that's how it should work is the consent of the governed and how that has been so undermined on the left. You listen to the left talking and they seem to have, an, you know, whether it's superdelegates for the Democratic nominee or whether it's uh, 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 using the executive power of the president or the judicial you know, activism. They seem to think that we, the people, are here to be man- managed as opposed to have us governing. And Antonin Scalia, I would argue, was solidly on the side of the people, even when he thought we were wrong.
1: That's right. Justice Scalia respected the rule of law and he also respected the right of the people to govern themselves. Uh, those who would conflate the rule of law and ordinary politics, I think, miss both. They, they undervalue both the law and democracy. You know, just a, it happened a few days before Justice Scalia passed away. I just happened to stumble upon a, 19, a transcript of a 1979 debate he was in with a bunch of other giants of the law regarding uh, the possibility of constitutional convention. This was back in 1979, but of course it was very timely in light of debates we're having now. And I mentioned this uh, in the current draft of the piece. Scalia, then a professor, this is 1979, he, um, he he talks about how important it is for the people to reclaim their own right of self-government. And the quote the quote I have right in front of me says, this is Scalia saying, I'm not sure how long a people can accommodate to directives from a legislature that it feels no longer is responsive and to directives from a life-tenured judiciary that was never meant to be responsive without ultimately losing the will, the people's will to control its own destiny. And I think that's the important lesson for us here is that within the limits prescribed by the express terms of the Constitution as originally understood, Justice Scalia would welcome the people reclaiming their right of self-governance through the democratic process and through federalism.
0: I have one last question for you, uh, and that is, if you were going to point... A you know a civilian non scholar like myself to a single opinion of Justice Scalia's to read to kind of grasp his view and maybe uh, show why he's considered such a uh, towering figure in the history of the Supreme Court. Which opinion would you point me to?
1: That's easy. I would point you to Justice Scalia's dissent, his lone dissent in the case of Morrison v. Olson. This was the 1988 constitutional challenge over the Independent Counsel Office. In that case, a uh, seven justice majority held that it was perfectly fine for the independent counsel office to be uh, to, for the independent counsel to be appointed by someone other than the president, to not be removable at will by the president or the attorney general, and to weed significant prosecu- prosecut- prosecutorial powers without direct oversight by the president or the attorney general. The majority signed off on that. Justice Scalia warned in emphatic terms. That this sort of office, an unchecked, unbalanced, unaccountable office, would would prove to become a constitutional nightmare, and that the checks and balances, though inefficient and though uh, though interjecting uh, politics and policy into the rule of law uh, through prosecution, that it's an indispensable protector of our liberties. And in fact, as a as a practical matter, history bore Scalia out when the Independent Counsel statute expired in 1999, and nobody in their right mind wanted to uh renew it. Scalia himself said in an interview a couple of years ago that that opinion he thought was his best most impressive opinion. There's so many others that could be recommended. Um one other I would I would I would I would encourage readers to look at was called Employment Division versus Smith. It was a first amendment religious uh, free exercise case. Another issue that once again is very much um, at the forefront of modern policy, Scalia's opinion, where he actually ruled against those pressing First Amendment uh, claims seeking an exemption from uh, from uh, drug laws, generally applicable drug laws. Scalia's opinion is just a fascinating consideration of the relationship between citizens and the broader society, between rights and democracy. Now, you can disagree with how his opinion ultimately came out. A lot of people did, and in fact, that that case was affected superseded by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which built a lot of these protections back into federal law, thank goodness, as we saw later in the Hobby Lobby case and we right. see in other cases coming up. But uh, Scalia he was he was hardly uh, he hardly had a one-sided view of these things. He respected individual rights and the right of Republican self-governance, and I think we all could learn from that.
0: Uh, that was the peyote case, right? That was the peyote case. Yes, I was watching it very, very closely as a young man, one day hoping to get my hands on peyote, which I didn't even know what, else, what it was until that hit the news. Well, uh, that's
1: okay. Oh, but, oh, the, this current administration might well legalize that <laughs> before they're done,
0: too. Adam White, can't wait to read your piece on Antonis coming up at WeeklyStandard.com. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast.
1: Thank you, Michael.
0: You've been listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. Please check WeeklyStandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.